that the Buddha gave us some uh, amazing promises about the benefits of practicing Kaya Gata Sati, mindfulness connected with the body. For example, he said that um, whatever wholesome practices leading towards Nibbana, towards freedom from suffering and enlightenment and uh, liberation release, whatever wholesome practices in that direction, they are all included. They're all part of that. If we develop mindfulness connected with the body, if we develop all these things, they're kind of a part of that. He gives a long list, someone who has really developed mindfulness of the body and what they will be able to achieve. Now, the first is that they will be able to conquer discontent and delight. And normally, we are always veering between these two. They're being excited about something stimulated and at other times being bored and discontent. It's particularly relevant, obviously, for the monks and nuns living the celibate life, living in seclusion and having no central distractions. Um, discontent can easily arise. But not so for someone who has developed mindfulness connected with the body. The second one is interesting in the pandemic because the anxiety and fear they be overcome and conquered by someone who has developed mindfulness connected with the body. And then there's a quite a long list, even developing a samadhi, developing jhana, full concentration, unification of mind, developing all the psychic powers and developing ultimately in the release from all suffering. All of that can be achieved through mindfulness of the body. So because in our society often we are so divorced from that and we are so much lost in mental proliferation, whether it's in screens, whether it's in thinking, Sometimes one may have to take it gradually and gentle steps to reconnect with the body and approach that. One thing which is actually good in Australia, that people are really into sports. <laughs> and sports is one way how one can develop or at least approach mindfulness of the body. When a person is jogging or doing other sports, now they usually have some awareness of their movements, some awareness of the body feels. It doesn't have to be any extreme sports, even just going for a good walk in nature. And quite naturally, if you start connecting and feeling and experiencing the body again. So I strongly recommend the less screen, less screen time, less time with gadgets, and more time being aware and feeling the physical body. And a great thing can also be in a gardening work. One way of 
developing Kaivata Sati, mindfulness of the body, is simply contemplating the four physical elements, Chatama Bhutika, and the earth element, the water element, the heat element, and the wind element. And uh, that can be both outside and inside the body, but they are connected. And a good way of developing that is getting into contact with these elements in a direct and raw way. And if you're out in your garden and maybe even barefoot, or even just walking barefoot on grass, feeling the soil, feeling the earth element, feeling the heaviness of the earth element in our own body, we are all under the law of gravity, and um, mostly one isn't aware of that. When the astronauts come back from their space mission, they usually have a very strong awareness of gravity after they haven't experienced it for a while. And it's quite an experience suddenly to feel weight again. If you haven't been in space or other situations of weightlessness, you have become so used to it that I normally don't uh, contemplate and don't recognize it, I'm not aware of it. So we can just settle in the earth element in particular as this sense of the heaviness of weight, of inertia. And we're standing on the soil of the large external earth element where we can feel the connection there in our own body and how the weight is resting on the feet and how the feet and the bones which give stability in the earth element gives a lot of the stability of the body. For only the three other ones, we would be more like an you know, indistinct you know, mass, you know, like, a, like a jellyfish or something. So the jellyfish doesn't have much earth element. The human body in particular, the bones, earth element gives the stability and the weight. And when we walk in the garden, on, even not on grass, now even more direct on soil, the wet soil, when did you walk the last time barefoot on wet clay or something like that? It's quite messy, but there's a very strong connection. You start reconnecting with the earth element. Remember this uh, Bhikkhu Sumedha, Venerable Bhikkhu Sumedha, he was in uh, quite highly paid and accomplished modern artist. He was painting modern art in the 1960s. He lived in the wild art scene of the 60s and maybe even part of the 70s. Till he renounced it all and became a monk in Sri Lanka. He still did some uh, painting of Dhamma themes. I remember visiting him once, and he, he's a very unusual character. He has passed away by now and a very uh, non-conformist and a little bit of crazy artist. <laughs> was an interesting dumb advice I got. And one thing he gave me, he gave me this piece of wet clay, <laughs> wrapped it into this wet towel and asked me to take that back to my kuti and then every day to touch the clay. So I've been traveling back in the Sri Lankan buses and trying to transport this wet um, dirty piece of clay I must admit I didn't practice too much with it, but uh, in a sense it was a good idea. And when did we feel for the last time the wet earth? Now, what does a pebble feel like, a stone, when we had 
the uh, um, so not in Ajahn Kongwit here. He, he loved me collecting uh, stones when we had a little walk over Damagiri. It took a long time because he would pick up stones and investigate them. At Bodhivana next to the um, senior monk's Kuti for, for guests, and sometimes they put me in there, and there was no one else more senior than me visiting. And they had prepared this uh, interesting walking path this kind of concrete, but then they had this very soft, smooth, roundish pebble integrated. So it's like a foot massage path. And you walk on this walking path and you feel these um, pebbles, not just feeling, it's quite quite strong sensation. You can't walk too long there. And you get a kind of foot massage, but again, also in the contemplate you know, the earth element and how the external earth element interacts with the internal one. And how we can feel our feet. And once you walk on this pebble path, how could we not notice you know, the sensation in our feet, in the feet in the part of the physical body? You now walking on the beach, Australia is a perfect country for that. Don't know how many thousands of kilometers of beach we have in our country and being so lucky. And uh, even if you have to do social distancing in, in Australia, it doesn't have to be Bondi Beach. <laughs> There's actually better beaches in Australia than Bondi. And uh, it's possible you know, to, to be alone. I remember once with a friend who visited me when we went up north to uh, Agnes Water. And then we went to this one beach and there was not a single person. And we walked for two kilometers without meeting or seeing a single you know, human being. It's great in Australia. And then walking on the beach, you know, all four elements are very prominent. You know, the sand, the earth element. And then you can walk you know, further down to the water and you can feel the, uh, the water element. And of course, you know, the wind is quite strong. And the surf, you know, there's even part of the water element is in the air. And then the natural wind on the seashore. And one can feel that, experience it directly. And the sun, in the particular in Australia, you really have quite a bit of sun there. You feel the heat element. And once we know, even when we look first at these external four elements, we interact with the body. And then you get directed and you can further support that and then they deliberately direct your attention now to these internal elements. There's also earth in our body, there's water, there's heat, there's the wind, internal movement of energy. Sometimes uh, Nevada, wind element is also translated as air, but I think it's a bit misleading, and then people think the air is only, maybe if you have um, trouble with wind in your in your guts, you know, that kind of wind, or maybe the breath, people can understand that as an air element. But there's also you know, what is called the qi in the Chinese tradition, or prana in the Indian tradition, just this energy and uh, movement of energy in the body. 
can be very prominently felt uh, if you have a bad flu. I'm not talking about COVID now, let's say a normal flu. And there's often these body aches when they're moving and there's a strong movement of energy through the body which one can feel prominently in the flu. But if you sit down and you do an anapanasati and the mind becomes very subtle, you can actually feel the energy of the breath moving throughout the body, not just into the lungs. So working with the four elements is a great way of uh, also working with this physical body is one of the exercises given by the Buddha. And now there can be, after enjoying them externally, it can be internalized and adjust and quietly sitting, can be identified with the earth element and direct experience. But this is why the Buddha didn't explain, uh, say, the uh, elements of the periodic table, which you maybe learned in uh, chemistry lessons, starting uh, with uh, hydrogen, helium, where the lightest is hydrogen, then they can go with all the elements of the periodic table. A very heavy one is lead. And then the, the transuranic one, the even heavier, plutonium and so on. So why didn't the Buddha use these ones? Why did he use these ones which sound weird to us nowadays? Or maybe like in physics, proton, electrons, neutrons. Now my understanding would be the Buddha didn't use the protons and neutrons or periodic table because you can't directly experience them. It's extremely difficult to experience a proton or an electron because you, know, you, you need you know, high-tech gear and then you only have a screen and you look at your eyes and some figure on a screen and then you infer electron or proton or even the sub particles, the quarks. And so you can't really relate to that in a direct experience way. And it's the same even with the periodic table. It's useful for doing chemistry. But the four elements that the Buddha described, that is something how you directly experience the matter form. There's always a sense of solidity and resistance and weight and inertia, which is the earth element. And there's always the water element, the cohesion, fluid, there's always a sense of heat or the absence of heat, the sensations of cold and heat. And then there's the and the movement, activity and energy flowing. And this is what constitutes now experience of the form and body. There's a question coming in. Please don't tell me you don't hear me again. This is Monica. Ajahn. Oh no, this is Nip. Nip is asking when one also caring about the body so that one can have a healthy life, long life. Is that an attachment to the body? In terms of Dhamma practice, how do we treat our bodies so attachment is not a burden in our mind? 
Yeah, no, we need uh, wisdom for that, to distinguish it. So, uh, you know, the Buddha, for example, and encouraged monks you know, to do walking meditation, and he encouraged them to be restrained when eating food. And both of that is an excellent way of looking after the body, not overeating, having this rule uh, that we eat only in the morning. So fasting like that, you know, every single day you have a short fast. And I think even modern research has now recognized that I think after 15 hours or so, you know, every single cell in the body is there. 16 hours after the last meal approximately, or 15 hours, every single cell in the body is switching to a different kind of mode where they're actually you know, cleaning and purifying themselves. So even the Buddha has, in that sense, given some advice, which is helpful and useful for the body and walking. In those days, they walked a lot. So we have to strike the right balance by wisdom there. And you shouldn't neglect the body because the body is a useful vehicle. But on the other hand, if you look at sometimes the modern meditators, uh, they wouldn't attend uh, a meditation retreat if it can't provide uh, vegetarian food or maybe even vegan food or only organic vegan food or maybe only uh, macrobiotic and biodynamic organic raw vegan food <laughs> and so on and then it goes on and on. And when you have you know, all the perfect conditions, you know, even sitting under a pyramid or whatever, and then you compare you know, how Ajahn Man and Ajahn Shah practice and what they were eating, and most people are probably very horrified if they look at an average meal, what Ajahn Shah or Ajahn Man would be eating. It wasn't vegetarian at all. with boiled frogs and fried... Um, what is this insect called in the beak? A locust, a white locust, <laughs> things like that. And then this white sticky rice, not whole grain, or white rice, and then this endless sweets. But they had the best meditation you can get. They really cracked it in their meditation. And when Ajahn Man lived in the forest, and sometimes you know, they would eat only sticky white rice for a whole week. That's certainly not healthy for the body. When you have malaria, it's certainly very bad for the body. But uh, because of the solitude and the seclusion, Ajahn Shah and other great Kubajans, they would sometimes prefer you know, to take the risk of even getting malaria, which you know, kind of can easily weaken your body for the rest of your life. You may never get... 100% rid of it anymore. There's many other diseases, and there's poor food, and there's very difficult uh, health circumstance, and still they would do it. So it's, it's not so easy to get the balance exactly right. You know, we have to let go of the body, and we have to let go. The Buddha said, you know, ultimately, if you want to experience Nibbana, you have to let go of you know, even concerns about health and life, as long as one is mostly concerned about good health and life, no one can't attain Nibbana, has to let go of that. 
But on the other hand, we don't want to go to the extreme of utter kilometano yoga, of self-modification. So um, all I can say is use your wisdom to distinguish that. And uh, I think by and large, you know, most people in lay life, they are erring on the side of the indulgence and being too concerned about the body. But then the other people, actually, I may have to retract that. And if I look at the obesity pandemic, it doesn't look like people are really concerned about the body. Maybe we can say they are concerned in the wrong way about the body. They want comfort for the body, but not health. It's two different things. <laughs> a comfortable body, you know, what feels comfortable, in particular what feels indulgent, what gives us pleasant feeling is often actually harming the body. Now, what is most on the side of comfort food is maybe the most unhealthy one and actually ruining our body. Or what feels comfortable in just sitting in a couch is not healthy. It may not feel comfortable on a cold day to go out and have a long walk for two hours in the wind. But ultimately, then maybe better. Malika has got a question. Although mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati, comes under mindfulness of the body, why is mindfulness of breathing taught in detail as a separate sutta? Now to go more in detail. You are correct, Malikana, that uh, mindfulness of breathing is part of mindfulness of the body. This is why it's mentioned as the very first exercise and the first foundation of mindfulness. But as a typical technique of the Buddha, he gives, let's say, talking about the four Satipatthana. And then in one discourse, you can only tell so much, how much can people digest, how much can they remember. We have to keep in mind that they have to remember that by heart. So then at another opportunity, you know, the Buddha goes deeper and he gives a whole discourse only about this one exercise. And if you go through the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on Foundations of Mindfulness, there's a very large number of exercises, quite a few under each of the four main headings. So the Buddha has to be very short in explaining each of them. But when he has a discourse only about mindfulness of breathing, then he can go into great detail. It's the same with Vedana. In the Satipatthana Sutta, it's fairly short. But there's a whole in the Vedana Sangyutta, where the Buddha has many discourses, and all of them are dealing only with Vedana, with feeling. So it's just a teaching technique. Now you teach a more like overview of all the different exercises and at a different time the Buddha would teach one in greater detail. Another reason is that it's its own sutta because mindfulness of breathing fulfills the practice of mindfulness of the body but it also fulfills all Satipatthana. This is one reason why it's such a fantastic meditation object. Mindfulness of breathing can be used for samatha and the concentration, samadhi, 
it can also be used for um, inside Vipassana. And it can fulfill all four foundations of mindfulness because breathing is also connected with feeling. There's a certain feeling of pleasant, usually pleasant if you do Anapanasati, and it can even turn into a rapture and bliss. So I've got a very wholesome spiritual feeling there. Now you need mindfulness, and mindfulness is a mental state, so it is also Chitta Anapasana. And with Arna being quite mindful of your mind states, it would be impossible to develop Anapanasati. And it is also the fourth Satipatthana, because if you develop Anapanasati, for example, you are reducing the five hindrances, and you notice that. And that is now the beginning of the fourth Satipatthana, the contemplation of the hindrances. So in the Kaivata Satisutta, when the Buddha talks about mindfulness of the body, he can mention only the first aspect of mindfulness of breathing, because only another one which is connected with the body. And he talks more generally in Anapanasati, and he can mention the other Satipatthana. Hello, what does the Buddha think about exercise? I mean, what does the Buddha say about exercise? The one exercise the Buddha recommended is walking. The Buddha wasn't so much concerned about physical exercise, now that is more like a side thing. The Buddha was mostly concerned about exercising our mind and training our mind to the highest pitch of skill. But in our modern time, I think the exercise can be a good um, approach to mindfulness of the body. That's something people are doing anyhow. And uh, when you do your exercise in a very mindful way, uh, you can already approach mindfulness of the body, and then you can deepen this exercise. Very vigorous exercise will usually not allow you to go to a very subtle awareness. So this is why a gentle walking is usually the best. It's still a physical exercise, particularly if you do it for an hour or so. But it is in a refined enough and simple enough, repetitive enough, that you can also develop a very strong awareness of that movement and you can make the movement very enjoyable, very smooth, very refined so that you can develop also on a certain level of samadhi while walking. So the exercise the Buddha recommends is basically physically is walking. No need to wonder to do extreme sports or to do base jumping or wingsuit diving or things like that. And just simple walking.